Hello and welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Loss's weekly podcast with myself, Game and Stops. And as ever, I'm joined by Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of Profit and Loss. Um, Colin, this week the Global Foreign Exchange Committee had its meeting in Sydney and then there was a phone call that was on about 2.30 a.m. my time, so I couldn't join. Much as I was, I was dying to get Lack on there. Lack of commitment. Lack of commitment. <laughs> Um, however, however, I think the time the timing was slightly better for you. So, so you were on on there. What were your kind of your big takeaways from the the meeting and and that call in particular? I'm I'm sorry to start this podcast off on a slightly horrific note, but um, actually it wasn't totally convenient for me because I was about to have a dance lesson. So I actually did <laughs> it while people were dancing. What was it? Hip hop. Believe it or not. Now, believe it or not, I'm learning the tango. The tango. All right. <laughs> yes. So there you go. There's a revelation to kick things off. Um, I, think, I think I saw a preview yeah. of some of those moves after our Singapore conference, Colin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not the tango, mate. They were, <clears throat> they were the ones that were even worse. <laughs> moving, moving swiftly on now that everyone's suddenly sitting there groaning into their coffee or whatever they're having while they listen to this. Um, yeah, the, I, I, I sort of put something out yesterday and I sort of suggested in my column yesterday, that I thought there was a uh, a desire to get things done, maybe a bit more urgency about the um, GFXC um, this time around. Um, the last couple of meetings they've had, it's kind of felt like they've just trod water and gone nowhere. This time I felt there was something a little bit more positive coming out of it. Um, I mean, I asked the question, you know, look, you've you're talking buy-side outreach for about the 18th meeting in a row. Obviously, that's an exaggeration. Um, but yeah, we've been talking buy-side outreach for a long, long time. What new, if anything, can you do to actually sort of you know, accelerate this process? Because to my mind, I think we're getting close to the stage where we turn around and say, either you price them differently if they're not signed up to code, or you just ignore buy-side, which then kind of diminishes the code's value. Um, <clears throat> the answer was quite good in in, in part. So um, Gardabell said that um, you know they've got a few um, papers coming out and examples around where the code is a positive thing for the buy-side. Um, there's also elements of... Um, Proportionality. So Neil Penny, the vice chair with Akira Hashina, said, "Look, you know, we're also stressing the proportionality and saying to the buy side that, yes, I know there's a problem here because there's 55 principles, but actually, if you're this type of buy side player, why don't you just focus on these 15 and get those right, and the rest, you know, can either come back to or you know continue to ignore." So I think they're trying to highlight that whole thing about um, you know this proportionality. The other interesting thing was when um, DeBell said, uh, yeah, well, we've got central, senior central bankers in Europe and Asia ringing around the CEOs of the big buy-side firms saying, this is a code of conduct which you know, demonstrates you're a good market citizen. Why have you not signed up to it? Now, it's interesting they're going to CEO level because that will filter down. And apparently getting some sort of, um, they're getting some sort of head, head, headway with that. So... That is a good positive approach to me, which I wasn't really getting before. I still have one issue, though, and it's your domicile. I cannot see how that works in the U.S. Because um, I think someone said, I can't remember who it was said in the call, you know, you look at the panels at conferences for conduct, um, you know, they're full. And I'm thinking to myself, well, yes, 
Uh, no, because you know, when we've, in the last year, maybe year and a half, in fact, you could even go back to the day the, the code launched, um, we watched half the room in New York walk out before a panel introducing the I global that, yeah. Yeah. And we were very surprised. So think, it was, it was, we thought that was going to be yeah. the big draw that day. Yes, exactly. And it's and I think it highlighted then. I mean, I, I remember turning around to my two, it was um, Guy Bell and um, David Puth. I remember turning around and wishing to him on stage, there's your challenge, walking out the door there. And it still kind of seems to be the problem in the US. So, you know, I mean, we've obviously got plenty of legal issues with the US at the moment in terms of, you know, what they think is acceptable and isn't on a historic basis. Um, you know, is, is there someone at the Fed that can actually ring around the CEOs of the big buy-side firms? Are the big buy-side firms in the U.S. going to be listening? It was interesting because, I mean, I you know, talk about different way of doing things. Um, so I'll get, get on to the other bit in, in a second, but they've, uh, they've set up an ALGO and TCA working group to look at providing guidance around ALGOs and TCA. And it's a good example of where the code is moving with the times. You know, you could argue they should have done this a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, but they've got there and they're going to do it. Um, and they've set up a, a, a working group, which is run by people who use ALGOs day in, day out. Compare that to the CFTC, which this week announced a subcommittee on market structure. And I had a quick look down the um, attendees. And, you know, with all due disrespect to, to the legal profession, there were 13 people from the legal profession out of the 16 people on this market structure panel. What do lawyers well, know about? How, how, did, how did the other three sneak on there? Well, yeah, I have to say, like, they, must, they must have legal backgrounds. When one of them was like um, running, was running a fund, the other one was actually a, a head of uh, a portfolio manager. So I thought, oh, there's actually somebody there that actually deals in markets, you know, probably day in, day out. Um, but yeah, you think they must love listening to legalese. But I thought that was a, a nice little juxtaposition around how the U.S., and the rest of the world is or, or how listed and how OTC markets go about their work. Um, going back to the GFXC thing, one thing that did interest me was um, there was a question asked about Last Look, and it's this stage we get the klaxons out on our podcast. I'm about to talk about Last Look. <laughs> um, but I would have to say, and this was mentioned by one of the um, speakers, um, it wasn't asked by me. <laughs> So there you go. There's someone else out there that worries about it. Um, but what was, I mean, a couple of things I'd point out is that, A, um, the work stream on disclosures is going to start looking at a problem I've had, I raised about a month and a half ago, around asymmetric hold times for different clients um, and also asymmetric response times. So they might look at that and say, does this need to be part of your disclosure, which is good if they do. I think they should. I think I can make it easier for them. Yes, that should be part of the disclosure. End of move on um <laughs> but one of them turned around and said uh, someone turned around and said uh, yeah if you look at the priorities for the three-year review that survey respondents said um last look and disclosures was like number four or five you know buy side outreach was number one i think followed by anonymous trading and algos and so on oh it was number five so therefore it was it was a, the, the quote was it was a small but vocal minority thought that this was a big issue um Two observations. Firstly, if you'd have asked everyone in 2011, most of the front change industry would have said, of course there's no problem people using chat rooms. What can go wrong? And secondly, um, to circle back, part of the reason some of the big buy-side firms will not sign the global code is because they don't feel comfortable enough 
around how it deals with last look and the use of last look. It loops back to that whole problem. Yeah, but Colin, I read, I, read, yes. I, I read your article. It's just a small vocal minority. Yes, I know. <laughs> I mean, luckily, I'm not a market participant. Otherwise, it will be a, a small, very loud and vocal minority. Um, but, uh, yeah, my point is, I think my point stands. Yeah, the fact is, the, if there's buy-siders out there don't, don't like how last look is treated in the global code, they're not going to sign the code. So, therefore, the code should be more important. Sorry, the last look should be more important in the code to me. And they should solve and that, that's part of the problem of getting the buy side on board. So overall I would say I thought it was it was a it sounded to me like they wanted to get things done. And you know, and I actually just wrote on my notes here here when um Neil Penny turned around and said, you know, Wait, the PR you actually, from you actually wrote here, and he, here on your notes. Yes I did. Just to remind myself. What is, what is this, the eighteen hundreds? <laughs> I could have written shame or whatever it is as a parliamentarian shout. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 really, I, I, a big tick would have done it, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I have a related question uh, for you, which is, uh, there's a quote in your article uh, from Mr. Hoshino saying, reject rates are down and generally behavior on platforms has improved. That is largely thanks to the code. Do yeah. you <clears throat> agree with that statement? Because I, the reason um, I ask is, I, I, I've spoken to a lot of people who agree that reject rates are down. I mean, this depends on what timeline yeah. you're looking at, um, and that behavior has generally improved. But a lot of them are, are less convinced that it's really the result of the code itself. Or at mm -hmm. least they say, yeah, you, you definitely can't prove that it's the, the code. No, no, no. And, and I think it's one of those things. There's a lot of things out there you can't prove. Um, with you know, un unless you have sort of you know some hard data, what I would say is I think I, I tend to agree because I think that they did actually mention as well that I think the ma a, a majority of respondents to this survey, the, the full results can be released in January, so we can get a proper look at it then. Um, but the, the majority said that the code didn't need changing and the, it had neutral impact on market functioning, whereas the minority said that it had an improved improvement on market functioning. Um, what I would say is that the code <clears throat> allied to data and analytics has allowed um, firms to have better conversations, as they like to put it, um, and to help lower the reject rates that are out there. So, And I think the, you know, the code says you should be looking at this sort of thing. You, know, you, you should be using this data. You should be open and transparent about how you act. So the fact that it's telling people you've got to be more open about how you act on platforms by its very nature would, to me, highlight where it may not be necessarily bad behavior, but it will be behavior that's not really helping the market function. And that is a very high reject rate. And you've now got platforms that sign up to the code using data. So I'd say it's probably more data analytics, but I definitely think the code has had a role in it. Yeah, it's just one of those things. Which actually brings me on to something I wanted to ask you <clears throat> in terms of being able to prove something. So you wrote a piece, a very just a brief, and it was press release, so I have to stress, I'm not, I'm not giving you a kick in here, I'd, much as I'd love to, of course. Um, but you wrote a piece about to hire at XTX, and it, there's a little quote in there that caught my eye. Um, and it was quite, quite wordy, so I want to get this right. And it basically said as... 
the world's largest FX spot forward in European equities, systematic internalizer liquidity provider. Yes. That, that's now, a quote from I'm Jeremy quite, Smart, the global head of distribution equity. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, and it's like, I'm looking at something like, maybe there should be a comma in there, systematic internalizer and liquidity provider. I'm not sure. Because I'm not sure what a systematic internalizer liquidity provider is. A couple of things struck me about it when I read it. Um, firstly, it's quite something. It shows how much the market demography has changed that I, I don't think two, three years ago, there was a non-bank firm out there could have in all reasonableness have actually, I'll stutter over that one again later, um, could have actually made this claim because, you know, it was clearly going to be one of the banks. But it shows how much the world's changed the fact that they feel confident enough to do it. I, I have to say, I totally do not buy the, the forward piece of that because I think that's a balance sheet issue. Um, but I thought it was quite interesting that they actually can make that claim. And I think it's quite yeah. interesting that I don't understand what it means. Systematic so, internalized liquidity provider. Yes. Yeah, so, so my suspicion is it's it's um, a definition that they've made up, and they've made it up so that they can define it in a way that it means that they are the top. Mm, okay. I like um, it. Um, cynical. And <laughs> <laughs> um, and I also think I also think well also I think look so, so claiming to be a systematic internalized liquidity provider right. I mean, surely, right, by its its very nature, if you're internalizing, how can you prove that you're the number one? But how can you prove that the liquidity you're providing is internalized? Is liquidity well, and that was my point about not being able to prove something. But, I mean, what I would say is I don't think the firm would make such a comment, even though their marketing can be somewhat positive, he said, with tongue-in-cheek, you know, with tongue in cheek, um, about its activities, which you know, everyone's is. Um, I think it's actually – I don't think they would have made the claim without some sort of argument behind it. I think the systematic internalizer relates to European exits because obviously that's a MIFID thing. So I wonder if that's different to being an LP there. But I think you're probably right. I think it comes down to what's your definition of LP because you know XTX are number one or two on just about every public platform out there. now. The, you know, the, and I look at that and go, well, that's not internalization because you're on – a public platform, but I'm sure the firm would argue that, well, actually, what we are, we're there as a passive market maker without a skew. Therefore, effectively, they're not actually sort of signaling any risk. You know, they're putting in the two-way price. Um, I think what I, 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 I'm reading that as saying, I think what they're saying is they're the biggest passive hedger out there in spot and, and probably European equities. And you know, this, this being in the thick of it, do we give one hoot about equities? Of course not. But, but yeah, it, it, no, exactly. Yeah. We, should, we need to get some sound effects on this. We need the klaxon for when you know, <laughs> the, old sub, the old nuclear attack one forever I'm talking about last look, and we need a, a round of booze for when we start talking about equities. Um, but yeah, so I, I, that was my only thought on it. It was like, hey, how the world's changed, and B, how the hell do we prove this? I don't think we can. Um, but I'm sure that, uh, you know, any bankers listening to this will probably get in touch over the next week or two and have their say on it, no doubt. Um, which, but you know, you what, know, I you know my on. favorite thing. Oh yeah, you yeah. Know, you know what my favorite thing from a press release was this week. It was yep. um, so. So twenty four exchange 
uh, the new venture from Dmitry Galanov, in which uh, Jason Wirtz uh, has been uh, a very public face of. Uh, it went live this week, and did. there was a, a press release went out, and um, what I find hilarious about that release was throughout the release, they kept referring it to the multi-asset exchange, and if you go online and, and just kind of Google them quickly and look at some of the news articles, they all refer to this um, OTC multi-asset class uh, platform. I look at that and I think, they're not multi-asset class. They're not even multi-product. All they have is the NDFs at the moment. Like, I, I, get, I get that that's like the ultimate goal, yeah, it's right? It's about and that's the ambition. Plan. Yes, it's all I about know. the ambition and the vision. Um, yeah, I, I, I get that that's the ultimate plan. But, but to call yourself a, a multi-asset platform when you're just offering NDFs <laughs> is a little much. <laughs> yeah, well, let's face it. It's what happens when marketing people take over. You get these things that confuse us, you know. There was, I mean, I, I get so many a week from people claiming to be the biggest in the world. I, I, I think my favourite ever was one firm that sent out a press release saying the biggest foreign exchange company, the biggest foreign exchange broker in the world. And I phoned them up because it was some retail platform. And I phoned them up and I'm like, I, I need some justification on this. Can you give me an idea of what your volumes are? Yes, yes, we do $5 billion a month. Um, yeah, the foreign exchange market is currently $5.1 trillion a day. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> and that, dear listeners, is the sort of idiocy sometimes we have to deal with. Um, it's interesting with the 24 exchange thing. I mean, I mean, it's been in the planning for quite some time as we've been reporting, but they're not exactly launching at the best time for platforms, are they? And, and I noticed, you know, last night, this is being recorded on Friday, last night, Instanet, announced an FX agency trading venue based upon their um, EMS. So it's like another aggregator um, for the world to, to dip into. It's interesting we're getting these these ventures still launched at a time when, you know, as we've been talking about on this podcast for some time now, the LPs are looking at the number of platforms they're providing liquidity to and saying, yeah, you know what, not really sure we need this. The, the, the timing you know, could probably be better, unless you work on the basis they're saying, well, look, you know, it can only get better from here. Well, there's that, but also, I mean, and this goes back to the thing that we've been talking about for so long, which is everybody always predicts uh, consolidation amongst the platforms, and yet every time yeah. we see some consolidation, there always seems to be new ones coming to market. Yeah, but I think that it's different now because you've got, I mean, I was speaking to a very senior platform um, head this week, and they were saying that you know the city um, survey Q and A, whatever you want to call it, that went out was very thoughtful, very well worked out, and would probably produce some you know interesting outcomes for the platform for some platforms, um, which I thought was quite revealing. This person wouldn't go into any more details, but it was quite revealing in in some ways. Um, obviously, you know, their platform won't be effective as only be everybody else, which I think is a standard response. Um, but it's happening. It's different this time around the consolidation thing because I don't think it's necessarily about consolidation. It's about whether they can succeed in the environment when the LPs are saying, you know what, enough is enough. You know, what are you going to give me that's different? I mean, the the internet thing could be interesting because obviously there's a heavy equities franchise. Within that firm, that you know they're using they're using that platform to trade equities, so you might get a few equity funds doing their FX hedging on it. 
Um, but then this brings us back to the multi-asset class solution. We actually don't really have one that's properly succeeded still, and we've been searching for that holy grail for 20 years. Um, <laughs> and that would probably also maybe have to eat into Bloomberg's pie, um, because obviously a lot of the funds that are trading fixed income that on, on Bloomberg that use Bloomberg for FX um, are actually um, trading nexus on internet. You know, they're trying, it's the same fund is what I'm trying to say. They're trading fixed income and exes. So which one are they going to choose? Um, but, you know, I think it's different because if you've got people, if you haven't now got the 10 LP saying, yeah, I'll connect to you, what do you get? Where do you go? Is this another one of these like mythical peer-to-peer matching where everybody sits there and waits and the minute the market moves, you know, they're all one way. I, I, I can't quite see it. Um, you know, if you look at the platform numbers as well last month, we can't go on one platform's data, but I think, you know, I think everyone's reported now. And um, it was not a vintage Apart month. from Integral. No, well, apart from Integral, and I think Hotspot by, there was one month where CBOE was slightly, uh, slightly lower. It's the worst month of the year for just about everyone. <clears throat> um, I think, you know, the Refinitive Forwards was the second lowest as well for the year. So it's across the board. Um, and we're just about to come into December. So it could be a couple of tough months in terms of revenue stream for these platforms. It's an interesting time to be launching these things. Um, I'm, I'm not skeptical. I think if you've got a good solution, then probably you'll get some attention. And I think you'll still find some what I would call tier two non-bank players who are eager to uh, to price to these price to anyone um, for reasons that our listeners can work out for themselves, I've no doubt. Then I, I suspect then it's um, they might find some LPs and they'll call them tier one. But will it actually be? You know, are you know, are the the big banks and are the big non-bank LPs going to be really willing to actually price to these new venues, um, especially if the uh, data shows them that not making money on it these are questions that we need to ask um, on the subject of platforms by the way yeah yep because um, obviously we, we were away last week due to the you cannot be bothered to get out of bed on thanksgiving day which i think is an absolute yep. disgrace um but um lmax digital started reporting their volumes which is great yeah. because i think it gives us a good insight into the crypto space and you can certainly give us a little bit of time on that but um isn't it funny how Elmax Digital was doing it before Elmax Exchange? <laughs> that that did occur to me when that release came out. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm a little surprised by that. I mean, do you think? I mean, do you think this will help build credibility in the crypto market though? Because there is still this skepticism amongst the the non-believers that you know, you know volume just disappears here and there. Do you think if you actually get a platform that they know and trust, you know, from their from their OT, you know, from their fiat world, um, providing daily volume, which you know, let's assume it shows something fairly solid, do you think that would help the crypto market evolve? Um, I think definitely. I mean, I think this is the kind of the kind of transparency that this market's been crying out for. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's massively opaque. I know people who still argue about you know, whether there's more being done on platforms and OTC. So I think I think that this is a, a good step for the industry. I also think, frankly, that it's going to bolster 
uh, LMAX Digital's credibility in this market. Um, yeah. you know, not that it particularly needed to, but I think I think having the confidence as a platform, right, to come out and say, okay, you know, not not people in this market aren't doing it, but we're going to. Here, you can see you can see what's going on here in terms of volumes every single day yeah. and see what we're doing and, and have that trend. in in a market where particularly like you know the the crypto market where someone pointed out the fact that the whole crypto trading was supposed to be trustless um you know they, they said there's a certain irony in the fact that this is the the least trusting market and the market where you shouldn't trust anyone because there is a lot of um sketchy stuff still um so 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 to come out in a market that is still very opaque um and provide that transparency i think for me you know if if i was in kind of an institution in the space that would give me a lot of comfort to be able to kind of look at that and and see what's going on in the platform each day yeah i mean i suppose we have to point out you know the numbers if if you're for people who are used to looking at numbers in the um fiat world it doesn't you know they don't look huge should we no. say but they but you know but the fact is though is you know everything has to start somewhere and, and to your point we now have some sort of thing that we can actually sort of you know look at the other thing that struck me as well with the crypto world um was uh there was something this week around um, they're going to deploy the Lightning Network to the crypto exchanges. Um, now, I obviously am fully on top of Lightning Network, um, Galen. But obviously, if you'd like to explain it to our listeners, then that would also that would help them because obviously I know all about it. Obviously, Colin, as I know as in I know how to spell it. Um, but basically, my my understanding is that means that that sort of goes towards like netting. That's like yes. a, a like a, a matching thing. Um, now, I thought that basically the idea of Bitcoin was to get rid of like these central things, <clears throat> these central bod, um, repositories, for want of a better word, where people would settle. Because it used to be like you know just basically around you do a deal, you settle, and you pay. And all, all on the blockchain. Well, doesn't this mean that they're now going to some sort of central repository for netting, which is kind of against the whole ethos of Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah but so we we actually had this uh, this debate was played out very vocally at our Hong Kong conference last year. Um, yeah, which was kind of a, a bit about it, some people on the panel uh, disagreed quite sharply along, uh, shall we say, almost philosophical lines uh, about cryptocurrencies and and what they were here to do and there was a and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here slightly but there was a yeah. great moment where you know one person was saying you know I'm not saying that what you're doing is is wrong I'm just saying that it's irrelevant um and <laughs> but, but, but I think <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but um but but I think that the, the part of this is and again talking about kind of the ironies of the crypto space right is, is it was all supposed to be the promise of of Bitcoin was right that you wouldn't was to get rid of intermediaries, right? You weren't going to have to have someone yeah. that would 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 hold your funds or stand in between two people who want to transact, right? But then as we as we get down into it, right, the reality is, oh wait, we need centralized in a lot of cases centralized exchanges or platforms of some description to stand in between us to to set the rules of engagement. And okay, um, actually, I need a custodian to hold my money in in deep storage and oh i need all these other infrastructure points right so i think in in some ways um the 
the premise that this would that this would trade on a kind of that this could move around on an institutional scale, right? Without having all yeah. these necessary middle points, was always misguided. Now, for, for pure, yeah. for I guess a, a pure retail transaction, potentially yes, but that's not really kind of what we're focused in on. Well, certainly not the world that we focus in on. No. So <clears throat> all I'm getting from that is that when I sort of said about two years ago that it isn't Bitcoin just really another asset for us to trade, I was probably right. Um, well, this comes. This was the debate we had in Hong Kong, right? Just say yes. Had, just say we yes. Had, we, just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had we had one market maker who who said absolutely um, that 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 is that is it, and that's how we view it, and that's how we trade it. Uh, and then we had another person um, who said that you've got it all wrong, and this isn't. This is just reducing it to something not terribly exciting when it can be so much more. Hmm. Yeah. You still didn't say yes, though. Damn it. Okay. Um, <laughs> we'll probably close out now, but actually, while we're on the subject of, um, you know, like the digitization of the market and the future of the market, um, you published something this week, and I think we haven't, probably haven't got time to go into it in any depth, but maybe just want to flag up a couple of key points. We published something around um, the move to instant settlement in FX. Yes. Um, so this was actually a piece that was submitted to us from uh, Brian Charlick at, at CGI. And I, it, it's quite a technical piece. So I, if you are interested in it, I would recommend that you go and read the article. It's called uh, How Soon Will Instant FX Settlement Be Possible? But I, the, kind of the brief overview I wanted to give the listeners was um, I was surprised at the barriers that he highlighted that still exist towards instant FX settlement. Uh, I'll be honest, in my mind, and, and perhaps this was kind of a lazy way of thinking about things, but in my mind, I felt that kind of the the, the technological or the, maybe not the technological, but the technical challenges for FX settlement had, had largely been um, solved. And it was more a case of, you know, it's very hard to move the industry from one way of doing things to the other. And, you know, mm. do we end up, does the whole industry have to move in lockstep? And people, you know, are very settled in their way of doing things. And, you know, and I, I just kind of assumed that it was that there weren't any kind of real roadblocks beyond kind of, you know, getting people to actually, you know, move plod towards this. Um, so I was surprised, particularly by some of the um, regulatory requirements that that can be challenging and some of the operational logistics that, that really still exist. Um and are some quite big barriers. Now, now uh, Brian makes clear in the, in the article that, that you know there are initiatives. Um, you know, people are making an effort to do this, but it, it's it's going to be a lot of small iterative steps rather than a, a big bang where like everything's going to go towards mm. uh, real time settlement. And, and some of the barriers to getting there, there's still quite a lot of actual technical issues. That, that we as an industry need to overcome to get there, which I think I perhaps yeah. didn't quite fully appreciate myself. No, no, no. I mean, I don't. I mean, I, I mean, it's interesting. You sort of you look at you throw those points in because my my challenge for this has always been: what do we do about the high frequency traders that are doing thirty thousand, forty thousand trades a day? Do they all have to be settled? So it strikes me that if you're doing that for a, for a participant that's going to end the day at square. 
or maybe you know, one or two, you know, one, one or two million long or short, um, is that not just putting a tremendous strain on the system and, and an unnecessary strain? It's, um, I'm not quite taken yet with the need for instant settlement. I, I get we can bring it from T plus two. I totally get that. And I think we can probably bring it you know, to T plus zero some, some way. But I'm not sure about the need for instant settlement. So um, obviously I am totally out of my comfort zone yet again. So I'll just carry on. <laughs> I'll carry on blustering as always. Um, luckily for listeners, I won't. That will be us for this week. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week. Um, have a good week.